In August 2021, the Department of Defense issued a mandate that all service members receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Failure to do so will result in punitive action and removal from military service. In the wake of that mandate, over 7,000 active duty service members, amongst thousands of National Guard and Reserves, have been separated from military service. Of those who stood their ground against the COVID-19 vaccine mandate, a large group represented by all services have banded together to fight back. On today's episode, I welcome Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Sonny Duncan, an F-35 operational test pilot and former Top Gun instructor that has helped lead the charge and hold the line for those younger service members who have not had a voice. This is his story. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Red Room Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is part two of the Ready Room podcast here with Lieutenant Colonel Scott Duncan, call sign Sonny. And the first episode that we covered, if you haven't listened to that, back up, listen to it. It covers a good bit of stuff. And as far as timeline goes, we're up into uh, the COVID mandate, and he's going to talk through a little bit about what unfolded post-mandate and up into current events. So, uh, Sonny, welcome back, and go ahead with your disclaimer. Hey, Susan, thanks for having me again for part two. Yes, this is uh, my experience, my opinions. Uh, it is not reflective of the Department of Defense of the United States Marine Corps. Thank you. <laughs> I love, we're back at part two. <laughs> uh, this is an unsanctioned bourbon promotion. Smoke wagon, small batch, oh, straight so bourbon good. whiskey. It's so good. From Las Vegas, Nevada. Is We're just enjoying that, and it's uh, greasing the wheels for this, pon- this podcast. Right. All right, Sonny. Uh, last we left off, it was the mandate had started. You had already decided and spoken with your chain of command that, hey, I'm, I'm going to refrain from taking the vaccine. Yep. And how was how did life unfold when the mandate went in place? Yeah. And how did, what transpired during that kind of year to 18 months? Oh, that's a good question. And it uh, so starting out at the very beginning, um, like we had mentioned previously, we had a discussion with all of our mentors, all of our friends, all of our family. Uh, some cases, they're very supportive. In almost all cases, they were very supportive of us as people, even if they disagreed at the time uh, with our decision and our um, rationale and our approach. Um, it's kind of neat to look back now, though, and and see that they are wholesale supportive now. And so, uh, especially as more information became available. And that's a huge part of the last year and a half. So the mandate hits. Uh, the first thing we had to look at is we said, listen, we disagree. Um, there are many tenants we disagree with. One of them is squarely in the context of a religious accommodation. And so we were not familiar with that process. A huge part of it was we've got to figure out what that process is. And we need to educate all of the service members uh, in how to execute that process themselves. So that started out the initial discussion had the XO where he said, you know, again, back, I asked him, I said, listen, can we, can I, after reading the order, offer a class to the Marines uh, to teach them how to do this or at least go through it? Like none of us have a clue how to do it. And I mentioned it before where the services were not very forthcoming with this is how you do this. This is the process. And, and you're specifically talking about the religious accommodation. That's correct. So nobody, this is, you know, there's not like a class on this. Nobody no, has any idea nobody how this has, goes and down. No one, none of us even knew that was that existed. Except, I mean, you hear about it. Sure. Uh, every once in a while, somebody wants a beard because they're a Viking, and I get it. But uh, <laughs> but you're like, okay, no one has any practical experience with this. So we, we get our hands on the order. We find out what the order says. 
And our concern, back to your point before, is that, yes, I'm a lieutenant colonel. It's a little bit easier for me to take a look at this uh, information. It's not as easy for young Marines to go through and figure out how to do this process. So I asked uh, the XO at the time, said, hey, can we offer a class? Can the squadron put a class on? Because if we are going to be serious about, hey, this is, especially in the context of religion. So we, you know, the free exercise of religion, constitutionally protected, protected by natural law, um, we owe this to these people. We owe this to these Marines. And the answer was absolutely not. Uh, and it was vehemently, absolutely not. You may not talk to anybody about doing this process. So I said, well, a part of what I mentioned to you is the fact that I'm going to support folks uh, who have the same mindset. And so, um, so much so that our church, um, you know, I happened to work there and happened to participate as an elder and said, listen, can we put this with several members of our congregation are now experiencing this? Um, and would you be willing to host an evening where we can go through this process? Like just open question. We'll, we'll give the information we have, be honest about what we don't. And this is absolutely. So we had a hundred folks come that evening uh, with how to figure out how to do Here's the information we have. These are the concerns we have. And we're happy to have a disagreement. Uh, this is not the place for it, but more than welcome to have a conversation at any point in time. And I think that's been a huge part of this is we wanted an encouraged dialogue rather than narrative. Even at times where we were told you cannot say anything, you are banned from speaking this, you are banned from saying, you cannot ask these questions, like all those sort of things is what we were met with. So the beginning part was we've got to get, we have to figure out what this process is on our own and we have to make sure it's in the hands of other folks. Now the awesome part about uh, our XO at the time, um, he did not allow us to do it, but he did allow the chaplain, which was great. So the chaplain came on because again, a few more days went by, realized like no one has a clue about any of this. There are some very specific processes and from a, in the context of a court of law in the future, the processes and steps need to need to be adhered to. So he was not supportive initially, but he ended up being supportive of the chaplain coming in, teaching basically every unit on the base. This is how you do this process if you're interested in it. So it starts off with the religious accommodation. Um, everybody had to submit those who were so inclined. If you're not inclined, you're a direct refuser, and those had different implications and different timelines. So every unit had one of the, uh, I guess there's two overarching things that are going to be a challenge uh, as we look back in the last year and a half as it kicked off. One of them was the timelines for every unit or entity were different. And in addition to timelines being different, there was no standardization in how any of it was executed. So it was pushed down to the lowest level of leadership of whatever timeline you want, whatever order you need. Um, and people were pretty loose, uh, even for the last year and a half, about which part of the orders that they adhered to, which parts they did not, uh, based on either convenience or need of units, things of that nature. Um, so anyway, the religious accommodation process was the first piece, and then supporting those who chose not to go down that road. Uh, so then every one of us that submitted an accommodation, I'll hit a, I'll hit a broad year and a half, and then go back to the specific details, but um, everyone's they got submitted came back denied. And so that was another huge complication. We have thousands of religious accommodations submitted across the country, across all the services. And at this point now, not only did we know who the other Marines were, but we knew everybody in every service uh, across the world. And we're trying to support each other in this endeavor. Do you know how many ballpark religious accommodations were at least applied? Uh, that's a great question. I want to say... I want to say there's probably 15,000 that were submitted or so. 
um, you know, the numbers change frequently. Um, the last snapshots we had with congressional reporting recently was even 120,000 service members were not vaccinated. So the reason why it's challenging is because, well, first of all, it's challenging to get raw data in sure. that regard anyway. Um, uh, we're at 8,400 service members that have been removed wholesale at this point so far. I want to say we're probably at the twelve to 15,000 of no kidding people who went through the religious combination process submitted. Okay. And for those that just, you said direct refusers. Yes. So they did not submit a religious combination. They said, I'm not doing this. That's right. You had mentioned it was different for them. It was. So the reason why it was different was you did not have, uh, so their timeline by and large was the only differentiation. So in a, in a, in a, a, well, up to COVID, a religious accommodation would have with it the same sort of complications with respect to did you follow or did you not follow off order. If it was for a good reason and you were not medically fit, then you would be separated with the merits of your career. And that characterization discharge would come with it, in most cases, an honorable discharge. That's different than somebody who's who um, directly refuses an order and the lawfulness of the order is a massive discussion that's being litigated in federal court right now. Um, it's very different for those individuals who outright refuse and do not provide the rationale. So now you're, you're in a little bit different. Not only are you not medically qualified, but you didn't have the next criteria, which was, do you have a reasonable disagreement? What is that disagreement? And if you can't codify that in some way, in religious accommodation, you can if you're a direct refuser, then now you have to rely on a court system because it's the only other, it's either, in other words, your legal and constitutional criteria. What I would argue for those, um, and we argue, we, we had a discussion with these individuals, a religious accommodation is a burden of conscience. So we have had, in fact, uh, since I can't think of it, I'll, I'll come to find, I'll, I'll do some homework. Um, the most recent religious accommodations were accepted. We're all over the map. So you don't have to be any religious affiliation at all to have a burden conscious. And so that's what we were trying to present them is if you have an issue with this, um, you have, this is a way with which you can voice this. Now you have to accept the outcome, but this is the way you can voice this. And many people said, you know what? And I actually agree with them in some way. Many folks said, I am not adherent to a religion to where I am comfortable saying this is what I'm trying to leverage. And so they said, you know what, I'm, I think this is wrong. I think it's wrong in its face, and I'm just going to refuse on that context. And that came with it a it, no, no process. So as soon as the uh, order expired, you had to have a shot by this date. They didn't have that shot. They were immediately processed for general and honorable conditions discharge. The kicker to that is that's the characterization of service. And that began to vary as people went to boards or not, depending on how much service they had. But the misconduct was characterized as commission of a serious offense. And that is another challenge that comes with it. So so to kind of, to kind of uh, I guess, illustrate that for anyone that doesn't understand all that, is that their characterization of service was a general under Arnold conditions, possibly, or yes. it was, that most was most likely, most of the time. That's right. Um, but there's also a at the bottom of your DD-214, your exit paper, it says reason for discharge. And that line right there is critical when it comes yes. to job applications. Yes. Trying to get into another service, trying to get into the guard, the reserves, any of those things. Yep. That's what they look at. That's right. Yeah, hey, I've got this, and I know this from a, I know a guy. I know a guy who's tried this once or twice. That's right. Uh, when you go all the way down to the bottom, 
reasons for discharge. And for these individuals, it would say misconduct. It would say misconduct, commission of a serious offense. That is the most severe misconduct. Now, the other thing is, is by way of precedent, um, that was generally reserved, that um, vernacular is generally reserved for felony offenses. So we're not talking about something minor. So even, I mean, you have to explain, like you said, on your DD-214, all those pieces. And so the things that are generally warranted commission of a serious offense, or in some cases, people that had incredibly, uh, had violated the law, both in the UCMJ context and in just in, in civilian life, uh, had far less egregious outcomes. So they often were able to arbitrate for an honorable discharge. So the fact that we were going to go, and the only reason why the limit even stopped there, so again, we had folks that were advocating for a dishonorable discharge, which has unbelievable implications. Before Thanksgiving, we were told, um, hey, when you go on Thanksgiving leave, they're considering other than honorable discharge, which is the most severe administrative that can be uh, levied. And you may not be able to come back into a federal building um, when we come back from break. So those kinds of things were reserved for mass. We're talking about huge felony convictions uh, that generally follow suit with those things. And so f- to have this be the case and have to explain that, that is a significant impact on the rest of your life. And to add a little bit to that, to, to Sonny's point, is a felony offense. You know, try in the civilian world, what's one of the questions always have you ever been convicted, yes. charged, and or convicted of a felony? And in the UCMJ, so a, so a couple, of, and I, I did a little bit of legal studies back in the day, a dishonorable discharge, your traditional, a crime that might fit that type of discharge are the worst of the worst. Rape. Yes. Yep. Is associated. Child abuse. Child abuse. abuse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, child pornography. Those type of things go with a dishonorable discharge. That's right. And with regards to some individuals who decided that the COVID vaccine wasn't the best for them, it, this this shit makes my. I mean, I I, I told you I'd try to stay a emotional on this whole no, thing no, and not get fired up. But when, when someone is associating that type of discharge with someone who has said, "Hey, man, I don't want to take a shot." Yeah. Yep. That doesn't make sense in any context, in any world, in any universe. Well, and so to that point, Susan, I think you're hitting on the highlights of what the motivation was. So under that context, like you're saying, we just redefined the manual with how we were going to handle any of these individuals. And you're being told this entire time that the reason behind all of this restructuring and the fact that they're going to... um, the NDAA at the time actually had limited, so the National Defense Authorization Act had limited, uh, and initially Congress had, you know, it starts in the House and said it goes back and forth, that only an honorable discharge was available. Then it was honorable or general under honorable conditions, and that was um, the worst that could be levied against a service member. The other challenging part about all that is the fact that a huge argument was the lawfulness of the order. And that's, that is hitting the federal court. So the, the, the reason why it's such a challenge is everybody that's being discharged for COVID, even though they're saying it's going to be the most severe discharge that you can get to some degree, or people were advocating for it at the time, is completely administrative. And so when you, it does not have to survive. The rationale, the reasons, the evidence does not have to survive the scrutiny of a court of law. It only has to have a couple of individuals that were appointed to be the boards of the um, members of the board and whatever they determine happens happens and it's not questioned. And so 
you do not have to have any of the of the really the veracity of your argument in that context. You'd mentioned earlier there was a um, if you were a direct refuser, the process was kind of expedited. Yes, and especially if you weren't in a probationary period, can you clarify what probationary period means yep. and the and the difference in legal proceedings that happen when someone who has not met a six-year mark and someone who has. Yes. So, and that is, that actually was what defines the probation. So for the first six years, you are considered probationary, specifically as an officer. Uh, There are some slightly different rules with respect to enlisted because they're actually enter and exit service as they re-enlist officers. That is not the case. So uh, to your point, six years is the probation. If you had not hit the six-year mark, then you would get separated without the ability to defend yourself at a board of inquiry. If you were past the six-year mark, then you would have at least the benefit of being able to go to a board of inquiry because you were ordered to show cause for the violation. Um, So the outcome often ended up being the same. Officers were separated with general and honorable conditions. In some cases, we started to see board of inquiries say, nope, this was a completely unlawful order. And when they did that, we had service members being retained and we had other service members being honorably discharged. So we had the full gamut, the same reason, in some cases, the same service. It goes back to the same problem. It's not, it doesn't go to a scrutiny. It does not get scrutinized like a court of law. It is literally whoever is on that board and that president, whatever decision he makes, that is what gets, uh, gets passed. So we had the full, full gamut, lack of standardization across the board. So break down a board of inquiry, just in yeah. very so, basic terms. No, that's great. So a board of inquiry is, uh, well, one thing I'll let you know another story. This is, These are heartbreaking. When you start to get down to the individual stories, so we talk about you know a little bit possibly in the day of life of each one of these individuals, it is dramatically different. So we had an individual that was separated at five years, 364 days to what would appear to be the convenience of avoiding... Uh, administering another board. So a board of inquiry is where an officer has been charged, but they are not considered to be guilty yet. They have the opportunity to show cause. Now, the board of inquiry, unlike a court of law, are three, generally speaking, three appointed members. So the service appoints the members to overlook the board. It is supposed to be impartial. They look at the evidence. They make a decision on whether you should be retained If you should be retained, then there's no discussion about characterization of service. If you should be separated, then now they have to determine your characterization of service. They cannot levy a dishonorable discharge. That would require court-martial. And of note, everyone who requested court-martial got denied. So now we have... Hang on, I want to stop it there for a second because that's a a key point. It is a key point. Because once the difference between a board of inquiry and a court-martial... That's right. That's that's a big deal. That that's uh, we're, we're talking. It's the uh, I'd say AAA baseball, Vice, Tom Cruise, and Jack Nicholson. Yes, and the yep, that's right. And civilians in a court martial can be subpoenaed to testify in a court martial. So it's it's a federal level court. Yes. So can and, you? Yep. And because of that, the reason why it's so important, the people that recognized. I am going to go defend myself, even if I have legal representation that I can bring with me. So I'm going to be assigned legal defense, and I'm going to bring, you have the opportunity 
to so we garnered civilian legal defense is also going to come with us to the board of inquiry if that ends up happening hopefully it does not and we believe it may not now um, but if that does happen we're going to come with it in full defense <clears throat> but the board themselves are only going to have to hear what we have to say and they can come up with any deter- determination they want so there is no jury and in that case there's no real judge so there is a you are looking at a board consists of military members who are in complete adherence and often mindset with the Department of Defense leadership, which is the reason why they're in the position that they're in and is the reason why they are presiding over the board. So folks began to recognize not only that, but I can present all the evidence in the world I want. And if this guy doesn't have to, he doesn't, it doesn't even matter if he makes a determination that has no legal context. Like he can make any determination. Okay. You know what? I'm not going to do that. I re- I request court martial because I want to get this before a judge. The I highest want a level, federal highest court. level. You better yeah. believe it. Yes. Take it to the highest level. That's right. And, and, and those were all denied. They were all denied. Talk about a conflict of interest. You know when the panel of judges who have been charged with assess, you know, deciding your fate, fall under the same chain of command that the same order you have decided to refuse exists. You know, service wide at least. Yep. DOD wide. Yep. <laughs> I'm chuckling, man. Jeez, it's like Mars. Is this Mars? Well, so the other, you know, and to your point, Susan, that was um, the boards. That is also the reason why. So one thing that we haven't even chatted about necessarily in this context um, is the lawfulness of the order. And because that is a huge piece of it. And in fact, right now, we've got some major items hitting in federal courts. One, the lawfulness of the order is being addressed, and then the other is the free exercise of religion. Those are the two. In fact, that's what define the class across the services that are protected in the class status. Um, but the reason why that mattered so much is because in a court of law, now the lawfulness of an order can actually only be adjudicated or determined by a judge in that context. So anybody else can throw around the term lawful and unlawful, and it doesn't matter whether they um, they can defend it. So the people were being accused of disobeying a lawful order, and any evidence they presented to the contrary was not even really admissible. I want to anchor on that for just a minute when it comes to lawful orders. Yep. And then remind me to come back to... The BOI part. Okay. And how that, the importance of getting things to a federal level. Yep. And then how we connect it to the injunction yep. that happened. Okay. And then we'll kind of bring things full circle. So yeah, remind me about those two things. Okay. Because I'm probably going to forget. Yeah. But lawful order, you know, it's something we, you hear a lawful order and it's very broad. And I don't even, I looked up the definition and I looked up another yeah. definition. Oh, yeah. You can't even, and then yep. it's like, they're very different. Depends yes. on where you look. Yes. Okay. So lawful order is very subjective. And I, I think it, it, it plays in part really with your, how this whole mandate has affected uh, junior enlisted service members who are trained and want to and yeah. are obedient and the change of command. And it exists for a reason. And they are very adamant about you follow orders and all those things. And there are some individuals and I'm specifically referencing the your your younger marines and service members who that you've been around the block a bit and have had opportunities and seen the benefits and know when 
the time and place to stand your ground and say no yep. to an order. Sure. Now, for those who are just younger in life experience, and you have someone who's senior, whether it be enlisted or officer, and you know, that trust is there initially, and they're also trained to obey, mm-hmm. right? So the probability of them saying no is is lower, even though maybe in their gut they're like, I don't know, man. Yeah. And when it comes to leadership, and again, this is my opinion, there is a time and a place to follow an order. Yeah. And a time and place to not. Yes. And leadership can wear both of those faces. I can follow an order and execute it, and I'm a ninja, and great. I followed the order. And that was my example of leadership, and I did great things, rock and roll. But I can also say no to that order, and that represents leadership as well. And I had this as I was you know, brainstorming this stuff on the flight over. All right, you've, you've seen Band of Brothers, right? Oh, yeah. All right, do you remember the part when this is, it's late in the series, the war is pretty much just like Bob in the ninth inning, right? They haven't taken uh, Birch's Garden yet, you know, the Eagle's Nest. Yep. But they're doing patrols at night across German lines. Yep, absolutely. And they they got some new guys, and they do a patrol. And the one dude gets so excited, he chucks a grenade into a house, chases his grenade, and the grenade kills him. So they lose a guy. And you, I know you know I'm getting at with this. Yeah, yeah, no, this is great. And... I was trying to think of a story to connect it with, right? But this is like, you know, I love that series. But so the next night, Colonel Sink, played by Dale Dye, comes down and says, hey, guys, we need to, you know, need you to capture one more German POW. You got to interrogate him and need one more patrol. We got to get some more intel with this Dale Dye accent. Okay, cool. And Major, I think it was Major at the time, Winners, is standing there next to him and is like, yep, yep, roger that, sir. We'll get it done. And then Colonel Sink leaves the room. Do you remember what happened after that? Like, yes. Take it away, man. Yeah. No, his- no. I mean, so to your point, he's like, guys, uh, and I, and my, I, my recall may not be perfect, but he was like, we have already done the patrol, basically. Like, we're not going over enemy lines. Yeah. Absolutely. He yeah. took a lawful order. Yep. And I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna polish up your no, version of the story. No, please do. Please do. He says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's such a cool part because you can see everyone's faces in the room, and they're like a bunker. Oh, yeah, they, they're like, "This is like, nobody wants no to, one do wants this. to do it." Oh yeah, like we just lost a guy. The war's pretty much over. Why are we doing this? I, you know, the the, the cost benefit ratio is not yeah. adding up. And major winners directly disobeys a lawful order. Now he he does it casually and indirectly, and he says, again, paraphrasing. All right, guys, um, uh, I need you guys all to get a good night's sleep. And I'll report back to Colonel Sink tomorrow that we didn't find anybody across the river because tomorrow we're moving off the line. So make sure everyone gets uh, a good bit of rest. Yep. And you see they're like, they're looking around. They're like, holy shit, did he just say that? Basically, we're not doing this mission. Yeah. But he's going to report to his senior that nothing to report, sir. Nothing significant to report here. And I remember seeing that. I was like, dude, that's leadership. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, man, Susan, you're, you're hitting on a huge point. Um, because like you said, there is a time to shut up in color. And there is a time not to. And there's a tripwire. But it, that's why in this case specifically, we had legal concerns. 
that were not addressed. We had medical concerns that were not addressed, and we had an underlying erosion of morality and ethics. And because none of those things could be addressed, that all came or that all comes in the context of what constitutes a lawful order. So you have codified law right now that says, and this birthed out of anthrax, the Department of Defense cannot force you to take an emergency use authorized drug. Now, if you look at the order that was written, the order, like the verbiage itself is incredibly legally specific. So the order is written legally as if the order was lawful. Now, this still doesn't mean, even if you're given a lawful order you disagree with on moral grounds, you can still exercise religious accommodation request. So all those things are available assets. The reason why I say that is you can be forced to take an or excuse me, a FDA-approved vaccine. That is something that legally exists. So in just in the context of law, that can transpire. The challenge is what was written and then what was executed. There is no way for anybody, nor has there been to date, an opportunity for a service member to get an FDA-approved vaccine. And time and time again, that came up. Now, there was one memorandum written where it said, nope, this can be determined to be interchangeable by someone who did not have the authority to make that determination. And then there was a sub-bullet that said, although they are still legally distinct. So that I've read, I read that today. And yep. it, 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 it's difficult to even kind of digest. Can you break that down in a little more detail? Yes, I will. And, and the... So specifically, FDA approved. Yep. Emergency use authorization. Yes. And what you had mentioned, that paper that came out, which I read, talks about, oh, essentially, although this isn't FDA approved, this is pretty much the same thing. That's Susan's language of yeah. explaining well, it. Well, no, and so Susan, I think you've got the best, and that's exactly right. So the, well, if you look at the history of the FDA, and I, I don't have, so I'm going to have to refrain from numbers and statistics because I don't have them fresh off the top of my mind, but there are very few, uh, literally less than a handful of vaccines or medications that can be determined to be interchangeable in a medical context, in a legal context. So if you, that is not a term that you can just throw out there. You cannot just take the ingredients and be like, well, we've got sugar and water in this one. we got sugar and water here. The compositions are different. There is a requirement of where it is produced. Like There are all kinds of things to achieve FDA-approved and actually execute FDA-approved to include the fact that an emergency use-authorized drug can no longer exist on the market if something is FDA-approved. So... If you were told, you were, we were ordered, mandated, you need to take an FDA-approved vaccine. However, we only have emergency use authorized, of which we were under a national emergency that has been reinstated every 90 days or so and continued. Now, if the national emergency continues, then leadership can continue to say, we can force you or we can give you emergency use authorized drugs. Legally, they cannot exist at the same time. So one of the massive challenges with this is as soon as one company would have achieved FDA approval, in reality, every other company and their product must be eliminated. So one of the interesting things is we presented this as the, the companies themselves that are producing these vaccines. And again, I'm going to use the term vaccine just for commonality right now. I do not believe that is the, that is the yeah. definition of the word. Good to go. 
Um, so this company produces this vaccine, this company, this company, this company, there's all these different companies. They all say they're emergency use authorized drugs. None of them have said that they're FDA approved. So they offer it to us as emergency use authorized and they can all coexist because there's an emergency in place and there's no FDA approved vaccine that's available. So the entire time that we have, we, 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 that is one of many of the tenets of the argument is that a service member, even if he was, even if he desired to comply, he can't. There is not a vaccine that he can take to allow him to be in compliance with this order. And we went by, here's this company's definition, here's this company's definition, here are the problems, here's their own reporting. These are emergency use batches. Now what's interesting, so here I'm going to take this, um, so we take the mandate, August of 21, we get to May or June of 2022. And the service, so here was another inch part, we didn't go down because every one of these stories has massive rabbit holes. We had um, legal missteps by SJA teams uh, with the commanding general, all kinds of things. So we have all of the, um, those who submitted religious accommodation that are still in the service, all brought to the ready room. And the command says, and this is a legally drafted document from an SJA in the chain of command. And the subject says, you're being offered comernity or comernati, depending on how you say it. They said, and the, the command touted it as, you are being offered finally, because many people said, listen, I'll take it if it's FDA approved, because that was their tripwire. And so the Department of Defense came out and they literally was like, they... Here is a piece of paper. We are offering you, for the first time, the FDA-approved vaccine. Will you take it? And so, I mean, again, from a legal standpoint, you cannot take people who are being criminally charged, put them into a room, give them a written statement to sign and circle without the presence of an attorney, and your UCMJ rights read to you. Did that, did that happen? So it ha- not only did it happen, but I said, oh, okay, these are some legal missteps we've taken here. You can't legally do this, of which the command was awesome. They were like, you know what? You're absolutely right. We don't have an answer to that. But again, we said, so if you are giving me the offer, and literally in the subject line and what you just presented to us is we finally have the FDA-approved vaccine, will you take it? then can you please give us the service of telling us what has been available this entire time? No answer. And not only, I mean, because they can't. Okay, so the next interesting piece is that FDA-approved offer came with a batch and lot number that Pfizer had already identified as an emergency use authorized drug, labeled Comirnaty, which was the product label of what was FDA-approved. So, but hold on a second. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw another twist in there. Okay, yeah, throw more, back. more curveballs, nope, man. More curveball. I'm, I'm getting all of this. So a month, yeah. a month, a month later, Susan. <laughs> so not only are we saying, okay, guys, up to this point, we have offered to you that we believe the order is unlawful in more ways than one, but specifically because you have only offered emergency use authorized drugs, of which you told me that it's interchangeable, and therefore what you're offering me is FDA-approved. Now you're offering me what is FDA-approved to finally take it to get these last few numbers because there's a readiness discussion, manpower discussion, all kinds of problems we presented, and you're 
advertising that you finally have an FDA approved and you're unwilling to have a conversation of what we've had up to this point. If you have something FDA approved, remember legally, you cannot have something emergency use authorized in existence. So a month later from that offer comes the next email. Because one of the objections... No, go ahead, Susan. I, I have to give you the time off no, no, for a second. Because yeah. I got I to gotta make sure I wrap my head around this. Now, legally speaking, if in, or, in order for you to... All right. Eight, let's say back they back up. Day one, they're going to mandate something. And they have in their hand a legitimately... Yes. Like a legitimate FDA approved vaccine. And yes. they say, hey, DOD, you got to take this. Yes. That's legal. That is legal. Legal, right? Yep. Now that can't exist with a emergency use authorization vaccine as well. Correct. Right. So it's got to be, it's one or nothing. So in this context, you can have all of these vaccines that exist, but the second something enters the market as FDA approved, no longer can there exist emergency use. Okay, cool. So- so let's hypothetical. They show up and say, hey, here's this is legit FDA approved vaccine from day one. Now we have a completely different discussion. But correct. In reality, what happened was an emergency use use authorization quote unquote vaccine was put into service for the DOD. And when it got down to the, you know, the home stretch, there was a small portion of remaining individuals not vaccinated then they said hey hey guys this one we got here is actually fda approved correct now if i'm a lawyer which i'm not and i'm trying to sell a vaccine as being fda approved i wouldn't just come out and say hey guys this one this this one really is fda approved but that other one yep uh well don't want don't worry about that one I mean, did they just so ignore no, it? No, 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 ignore. Yes. So no, n- at no point did they say, so the, one of the challenges is our questioning of their process. So one, we went to the SJA team and we're like, you have taken legal missteps that you can't take in a legal sense. And so many of us refused to, to sign the document. It was like, nope, this was like, you can't do this, 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 and this, and then give it back. Now, to your point, every time we said, if you're, if you are genuinely, because many people's sole disagreement with all of this was, it's emergency use authorized. It's not FDA approved. And if that was their sole litmus, then the government was trying to basically say, okay, fine, we finally have it. We finally have the label, the Comirnaty labeled FDA approved. And then anytime it raises the next logical question, well, then what was available to me back then? when I originally got this order, of which there was no response. Has there been a response? No. So it is this, the, the, I take it back. It's not that there's no response. The response is the same as it was in the beginning. You were, off, you were offered an emergency use authorized drug. You were forced to take that because that's all that was in the inventory. And somebody who did not have the authority to determine that it was quote-unquote interchangeable made that determination and that is the sole foundation of the government's defense, is that it is interchangeable. That is also going to be litigated in federal court pretty soon. So that is, gosh, man. 
Well, it gets better. Hold on. I got, I'm going to throw one more. Well, I want to throw in like. Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was going to throw the well, last. You know, you know what popped in my head when you, <laughs> when you said like, hey, FDA approved. And then actually it's it's the same. This is the generic. I, I, you remember, you know, hey, Dr. Pepper and Mr. Pibb. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. literally what uh, during this this uh, discussion as a Texan I can you, you know, I can latch on it's that. like, like if no. that doesn't explain like my brain you know you're like hey this is a this is legit Dr Pepper guys but you know here's some Mr Pib but it's still the same man yes. it tastes the same it's got different label but don't worry about it it's Dr Pepper but in this case not only is the it, everything is different about it and that is the massive massive challenge especially when we talked about previously accountability. The companies are like, listen, we were forthright with what we gave those individuals. So now one of the massive challenges, and we talked about some of the adverse reporting that's coming to, uh, to Congress right now, is pinpointing who is accountable for that is a massive, massive challenge. A question with, on that note, if you take an, an emergency use authorization vaccine and have a negative effect to it, yes, can you file... Let's say you you have uh, myocarditis, carditis, any of those the, the stuff. Yes. Many people way smarter than me have talked about. Yeah. If you have a negative reaction health wise to a vaccine, can you in any way? Is that pharmaceutical company liable in any way? They are not. Okay. Which okay, that's what I thought. Now, transition. Let's say they give you the real Dr Pepper. All right, you get the FDA approved Dr Pepper. You take it. Now you have a negative reaction. Is that company held, can be held liable? My understanding is that is a true statement. That's also what I've read as well. Okay. So if, if Sonny's starting a pharmaceutical company, mm -hmm. is it more beneficial for you to launch a legitimate FDA approved Dr. Pepper or is it Mr. Pibb the better way to go? Again, I'll let people come to their own conclusions, but I don't know, man. That that one just sounds a little too convenient. Well, for so me. not only did it sound a little too convenient for everybody, um, especially when we went down the listen, we went to the places where they touted the FDA approved. They said, "Listen, we have it at these places," and they specifically said, "We have such few numbers. We have to have you sign this document so that we know exactly the numbers that we're going to administer." And the individuals went to those places and garnered the batch number on the vial and those batch numbers on Pfizer's documentation has them listed as emergency use authorized drugs still. So that information was also presented to the chain of command. And again, no response or no, the response is interchangeable. doesn't matter. And then a month, I think it was about a month after the, we finally had the FDA approved because another huge component to the religious accommodation discussion is the technology maturation over time and its tie and link to a abortion. And because of that, many people were seeking non-abortive alternatives. If they could find something that did not mature with technology that resulted from the death of, of a baby, then they were saying, okay, I don't have the same moral complication with this than I do with the other. So Novavax was originally offered in that. Now Novavax, unfortunately, has the same lineage. Now Novavax, so one month after, so we just, you've been told from the mandate, you've been mandated to take an FDA-approved vaccine. You've had nothing in the inventory other than emergency use authorized that somebody determined to be interchangeable in a medical sense, of which I think there's only like, no kidding, one or two, one or two things in the 
country that meet that profile. Now we get to, oh, it's about a year later, and we finally have the FDA approved. Come and take this. And for those of you who still won't take that, a month later, we were offered Novavax as an emergency use authorized drug. So legally, none of those things can transpire if, if in fact, there is an FDA-approved vaccine on the market. Jeez, man. So those are those are some massive. Did you ever expect to have this amount of knowledge? I mean, are you <laughs> I mean, gonna? What, even, what are you gonna do, brother? No, no. I mean, you just Susan, nothing not you said referenced airplanes, bombs, <laughs> you know, anything. It was just oh. pure. I mean, that's dude. You, you're no. I, I I wish more than anything I did not have this knowledge. This, yeah, I got gotcha. these things. God. That's for sure. Well, man, let's let's kind of we'll work our way into the next kind of portion, and and then we'll bring it home. So that, that's kind of been going on throughout the mandate. A little bit of just day-to-day life uh, in, in your experience. And, and we had talked earlier a little bit about leadership comes in different shapes and sizes. Yep. And although yep. there is a policy in place, it does not mean you have to crush the souls of your men and women in your charge. Yeah. And that you can color, albeit in a different way. Yep. And, and you had said earlier, your experience here in Yuma has been positive in a way. Yes. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you bet. So again, I'll... I'll and and reason-wise, reason I, want, I wanted to highlight that although not every person in a leadership position is... Um, I wouldn't say there's still good people in good leadership positions carrying themselves in a way that I think is respectable. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're doing it in the best interest of themselves. They're... I shouldn't say themselves, but they're the men and women in their charge, their families, things like that. But also applying a, a solid dose of common sense to whatever policy or whatever they're receiving from their higher ups. Yep. And I, I wanted to just kind of highlight that for you. No, that's a that's a great point, Susan. I think so. My personal experience, well, also it's worth highlighting in the same fashion that many of us are having the discussion and fighting on. I would say on behalf of not. Um, well, yeah, on behalf of several service members, right? So because all of our experiences have been dramatically different. Um, and it it eventually dissolves itself into the personal relationships you have and the personal wherewithal you have in the chain of command and what kind of leaders that you're interfacing with. Uh, so my personal experience um, has been good. It's been positive. Um, I mean, it's negative in the sense that it's incredibly daunting. Like it's it's always there. It's the elephant in the room. You're never, you're not, like, so again, my trajectory from a career standpoint was, compl- was the Marine Corps had determined meritoriously that it was worthwhile. And it, what, no, sp- and again, man, there's so much stuff to cover and there's so many things I'm like, oh, we got to talk about that and that. But the, there's, where was your career headed? So, you know, it's a great point. Prior to COVID and yep. then where is it headed now? So before COVID, I had been, again, you know, I had been the product of the people I'd been around. So I can lay no claim uh, to this as my own um, and the God I serve. But my career at this point, I was meritoriously reordered for promotion to lieutenant colonel. So that means that just simply means that it happened before it was going to happen on the slate. Um, and then I was immediately slated to command an F-35 squadron. And our career up to that point was, was very good. 
And the Marine Corps had determined and recognized that it was very good. And we knew that we were very competitive and had done everything we could do and done it in a way that it was recognized by the service as exemplary. And because of that, service members um, were kind enough to share with us where they believed our career could go. And we were actually on board with continuing to serve in that fashion. So that was the trajectory we were on before. Um, and then as soon as the COVID mandate hit, and as soon as we made our decision, um, it, com- it did 180 degrees. So now we are, the most recent thing is we went through the, uh, up to the Board of Inqu- uh, Inquiry process. So we've been charged with Article 92. Uh, we were ordered to show cause to the Commanding General. And we are, the we, we, only thing that stopped us was the court-ordered preliminary injunction. And that part of the argument is centered around the free exercise of religion. So we haven't even really got on that piece yet. Everybody who submitted religious accommodations, they all got denied. I say all. There are a handful that were not. And the court recognized that the only ones that were not were the people that were already like on the door, on the way out, never stepping foot in a federal building again. And so there's a massive free exercise of religion constitutional discussion we had here to include the fact that it's codified in law in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. So all of those things were infringed on in this process. Everybody applied, got denied. Everybody appealed, got denied. And we're getting kicked out. So in the course of day-to-day, though, so now you are, you're no longer able to participate in this. You're not invited to these meetings anymore. You're no longer briefing these. I mean, before, it's like you're the guy briefing, doing all like, the generals coming in town, senators coming. Like That was your life because you were the one that was there, you know, had done well. And you were the one that had the most intimate knowledge on it. And then that went away. I couldn't travel anymore because I was considered a health threat. Um, so all those things wear on you over time to include the fact that day to day, you're still having to pave a way for your life post the Marine Corps being told that, hey, next month, you're probably going to get kicked out. So you're living for a year and a half of, you have no idea when you're going to get separated. You have no idea the conditions with which you're going to get separated. You are fighting alongside lawyers. You're fighting alongside Congress and you're trying to inform the American people. So for a year and a half, that is, that comes with it. Uh, A wonderful burden and responsibility that I would couch under the context of leadership, but also it takes a toll. Uh, Now, for me, though, day-to-day, I was able to keep my job as a department head. I was able to fly as one of very few people in the country who were able to fly. Other people were uh, grounded. They were removed from their positions. They were shoved off into different offices. They were sent home and told not to come back to work. Like All kinds of things happened to different people. So I didn't experience, in some way, it was good news in that context. It's also challenging in the fact that I'm still fighting a legal battle to preserve my career and my um, and my name, and in the same context, trying to go to work for the very people who are trying to criminally punish me and still produce. Like, so there's some <laughs> yes, challenges there uh, oh for gosh, every day, dude. you know? All right, so, dude, that brings me to the next point. I wanted to, this is fascinating to me, man. That is a tightrope walk of epic proportions. And well, that, you, you just summed it up, but you are, you've kept your cool, Throughout this, and I'm sure you had your, your, you know, go break a bunch of stuff here and there. That's, I would totally do it, you know, like seven days a week, just breaking stuff. Um, but dude, what's, what's kept your, what has been your kind of, 
I don't know, I guess, you know, grounding force, what, like soul charging battery charging station, whatever it is that's kept you because the amount of frustration that is potentially existing, what's the amount of stuff at stake that we mentioned before, four kids, a wife, retirement, it's not small things. It's not my dog and my coffee roaster. Yeah. Yeah. Like you've got a lot on the table and you're walking this tightrope with a bearing and a class that is exemplary and it can't be easy and maybe some days are more difficult than others but you are the pink elephant in the room you know you are the guy that i mean everyone i don't know i don't know how many people actually give a shit honestly yeah when you walk in the room i think probably like hey sonny's here what's up dude let's get a cup of coffee but in the in the grand scheme of things you're the pink elephant yep and so what what's kept you just from losing your shit? Honestly, man, I would have, dude. I would again, long time ago, man. I'd be in jail. No, seriously, I tell you, nope, nope. So I think uh, so. Well, one, I appreciate you asking the question um, because I do think that the things that you have recognized that are um, worth noting is is a demonstration of Jesus Christ in my life. So because this decision was made in that context. I have no question in my mind that what we did was the right thing. I also do not hold in judgment anybody who made a different determination than we did. And I think that that has been one of the most valuable parts, especially as we went into the media sphere, on Tucker, those sort of things. It had to, we had to be very specific in making that determination. We are supporting everybody making the decision. And that's why at the end of the day, this whole process, I would do this if I knew... Now, granted, at the beginning of this process, we were looking forward to potential jail. I mean, I I, I shook hands with farmers here in Yuma who was like, in, in a serious conversation. If I leave with a dishonorable discharge, can I come work for you? And those men were like, you know what? We believe in what you're doing. And yes, we will hire you. So we literally had to pave that way to other alternatives for employment, all kinds of things. So, But the reason why I say that is that's the beginning of what we're looking at. Remember... Uh, we mentioned in part one, I'm responsible as a Christian man for being obedient one day at a time. In fact, I think if God gave me a vision of what the future would look like, I would fold, I would fail. <laughs> so I had to have like, yep, that's one piece at a time. And I look back now and the, the, the depth in that relationship with the Lord, the depth in my relationship with my wife, the depth in our relationship as a family with my children, the depth in relationship with the people that we made, I would do it again in a heartbeat. I would do it just for those things, even if the outcome was as severe as what we thought it was at the beginning. So that is that has been the anchor. And because of that, there's a piece that passes all understanding. And that is absolutely what we've experienced, even in the roughest of times. That is cool, man. When you when you can go to bed at night, sleep easy, wake up, and you know you're fighting the good fight. Yeah. That's a cool thing. Um, on on the job front, you yeah. know, if if you're interested, um, we're looking for good leaders over at Red Room Coffee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, I know you might have some other offers from the farmers <laughs> and stuff, but uh, starting salary is zero dollars. <laughs> we have no benefits. Sign me up. Uh, <laughs> you have to, you know, travel, meals, and lodging is all out of pocket. Uh, but we have a popcorn machine. And uh, dude, you get to drink coffee with Fighter Bros. The thing is, it's something you believe in, and that's right? so I'm I'm on board, man. But you got to submit a resume. 
Uh, and, sounds uh, good. Get I'll some letters that. of rec. We'll, we'll put you in the pile to see, see what happens. <laughs> that sounds um, great. Well, dude, that brings us up to where we are now. Okay. Yeah. Like yeah. current events. Yep. What's happened recently that has taken this whole deck of cards and just chucked it? Well, I think so. A couple of things. I mean, one, I think the very first thing that really began to ruffle the deck of cards was actually the, uh, the winter of, uh, severe illness and death. So, I mean, I remember seeing produced in the documentation saying like, if you're unvaccinated, be prepared for the winter of death. Um, when that whole winter transpired and COVID as a virus did not, discern or discriminate between those who are vaccinated and not vaccinated, it began to open the eyes of a lot of people who said, wait a minute, I took this thing because you told me to take it and I wasn't going to get sick. Now you're telling me, oh, that's not true. We're only telling you to reduce the symptoms of which I don't think that's even true because everybody around me got sick and they folk, and this is our experiences and the folks around us who are not vaccinated were not sick nearly as long as I was. So, and this is, again, we're not even going down the, all of the data that supports what we are seeing now as far as adverse reporting. We're just saying like day-to-day people experience, Marines coming up to me now, because especially now at this point, we've been out in the public, we've been out in media, like people know, back to your point, people know who we are. We don't know who they are, they know, and they'll come up now and they have the freedom to come up and say, listen, man, I had this happen to me. I had this happen to me. My friend just had this happen to them. They, like, because they knew we had skin in the game. And we were fighting for them. One of, in fact, a very common question in that winter from Marines was, will you guys continue to fight for us when this stuff, this bad stuff starts happening to us? And it was absolutely, this is not a fight for just this, this mandate. This is a much larger, much larger thing here. So that really began to shift the tide. And once that happened and the narrative continued, even though people were like, the narrative does not make any sense. So I, I was charged for failure to obey a lawful order in the context of it, just like the other members you talked about before in their board of inquiry is because we were considered to be a health threat, a health threat to ourselves, a health threat to other people, a health threat to our community, a health threat to our marine. I mean, those are almost verbatim words. And when the, um, the entities that had originally said that with the narrative that supported it shifted to say that's not the case anymore, then it began to massively change the minds of people. They're like, well, wait a minute. Asymptomatic passage, that's not a thing? Okay. Uh, a natural immunity, now all of a sudden that is a thing? Well, that doesn't make sense. Now, so it everything in its context. So after that winter, all of us who refused were now in agreement with the prevailing medical narrative. But we were still being prosecuted under the previous understanding, if you want, or the changing science or whatever you wanted to call it. So that was, I think, a huge part of the tide shift. At the same time, we had been providing reporting to Congress and we had asked. In fact, we've always advocated that if the American people do not like what they see to engage with their their legislatures at the federal level and the state level. And so all of those things kind of began to converge. And the more time happened, the more people realized, I don't think these people are a health threat. And from the very beginning, we would say, I don't think this has anything to do with health. And the Department of Defense would say, this has everything to do with health. And you're risking everybody else's life by not getting vaccinated. Now, they're saying, this has nothing to do with health. We don't think that you're a health problem. This is 100% because you did not obey an order. And that, we would argue, 
was the basis of our argument at the very beginning. We just came to that conclusion a year and a half ago. So in addition to that, we have the American people whose experiences have changed. We have more information that's coming out. So the data to support the narrative that previously existed is not there anymore or is in massive question. And because of that, the American people are looking on their own saying, I'm not sure I believe this narrative anymore. And therefore, I'm willing to kind of begin to put my ring in the hat to see it changed. And so that is, I think, what drove Congress. Because again, Congress, we love the congressional support we've received, um, but the administrative state and constitutional progressivism, progressivism has taken Congress to a place where they are largely driven by constituent resolve. And they have to be. like So true legislation doesn't necessarily happen the same way it was envisioned to, to happen. So if a constituency is not discussing it, then it is not likely to make movement in Congress. So you had, you had mentioned a, a change in tide. Yes. So that's the, that's, that's the most recent change in tide. Well, so congressionally, what? I would say yes. But so I think the impetus was before. So we haven't mentioned specifically what that is. So what exactly is that? Uh, well, so I think the change in tide is that people began to look at the... Well, I mean, I mean, on the congressional level. Oh, okay. With regards yeah. to the mandate specifically. I so, gotcha. So Congress specifically is saying that the context of the mandate, well, one, depending on who you're talking to. Now, the most recent thing that happened is uh, the NDAA got signed with the National verbiage, Defense. the National Defense Authorization Act. Thank you. That got that gets signed every year and is actually the it among other things holds the budget. And so there were enough people saying they did not agree with. So if you look at the department of defense, one of the initial arguments we made was, listen, I don't have the same purview of every leader, but I can tell you based on our experience that there has been a manpower issue. And if you eliminate tens of thousands of military members at a time where our manpower is is in a significant shortage. That is a massive hit to readiness. And we were being told, you must take this vaccine in the context of preserving readiness. And we said, we don't, we don't believe that's the case. And so we specifically were asking leadership, please show us any cost-benefit analysis that was generated to lead you to believe that eliminating tens of thousands of service members is more beneficial or is um, because of the, their their threat to society is more beneficial to readiness than giving them the COVID vaccine, and we'd say nope, that's not it's not possible. So the reason why that's so important is I think what happened is originally the Department of Defense was saying, listen, these numbers, these COVID refusers, the numbers are so small, it doesn't even matter. So we can afford to lose all of them; it just won't even matter. And we were beginning to say, like, man, I'm looking left and right. In the context of pilots, that's a thousand pilots gone like that. Oh, of which the Air Force just said, we're at a, a critical shortage. Uh, I live in TAC Air. Nobody is healthy on pilots. Um, so we knew it was not necessarily transparent or truthful. Um, or at least even if it wasn't necessarily malicious, it was not being represented correctly. And so those were the kinds of pieces of the puzzle that were helping us shift the tide. Finally, then the services began to say, yes, you know what, you're right. Like we... We don't have the numbers. We don't have, and you can see that today, open source reporting. It's just saying like they're doing everything they possibly can to open up the doors to even just allow people to serve. 
And the challenge is we have also argued at the very beginning of this, Susan, I hate to continue on this diatribe, I think this is valuable, is that we have asked leadership to consider the multi-generational impact of this decision. And we have said that you will not experience this deficit generationally for a very long time. You are severing yourself from families that have had long-standing military tradition. And the, and the country is watching the way you're treating people. So yes, it's one thing to handle us right now. It's a whole nother thing to communicate this down to the, of which you're experiencing now. Yeah. And they their answer was the numbers are just not significant enough. And I, I believe I read that it was nominal. Nominal was yeah. the word. Yeah. Uh, that's from the Secretary of Defense. All right. So per that NDAA, Yep, it's a big deal. It is a big so deal. So this is a uh, so in part of that is the defense budget is part of it. Yep, but also they slipped in the verbiage that rescinded the COVID nineteen. Yes, so that that point specifically I want to anchor on. Yes, so it's been so from August of twenty one. Yep, to now December of twenty two. No, it's not signed yet, so it has to be signed by the president. Yep. Correct. So it's that's all done. The Department of Defense now has they're within the window of 30 days to implement the rescission of the mandate. Okay. So the mandate you were given yep. in August of 21 and the entire DOD that you must take this vaccine or a version, one of these options yep. has been pulled back. Correct. So now, I mean, the house of cards just tipped over and it's been, that's less than 18 months. Yes. Now, that's a big deal when you yeah. put so much, I'm going to put all my money on the table on this one thing, and then 18 months, which is not very long in the you know context of things, yep. I'm taking my money back. Yep. I don't want to play these cards anymore. Yep. That's a big deal. And you, so you, it's a huge deal. Now, there is, I mean, that's only within the last couple of weeks. Yes. Has there been, I mean, in that short time frame, like what's transpired from from your perspective? So from my perspective, nothing has changed uh, yet. Now we're still within the thirty days. So on the twenty third of January, that is the technical thirty day mark. So we know that the mandate is rescinded. We do not know what the execution of that rescission will look like. It could look in one of two forms. We've worked with a bunch of people who have intimated that that rescission means that the mandate is gone and all punitive measures taken. So administrative separations, those of us who are waiting to show cause authority have been charged from the UCMJ. All that will go away and we will be able to exist. Now, that doesn't mean that you're able to go TDY yet. That doesn't mean that you're considered deployable yet. None of those, we don't know what any of those things may look like. There's other people who are saying, well, that's great. The mandate is rescinded, which means if you enter the service today, you are no longer required. However, those of you who were given the order before are still um, still going to be criminally punished. Because so we don't know. It could be it could be anything like that or anything in between. I do believe it's going to be more like the first iteration we mentioned, which is you know what, uh, the mandate is gone. No one can be criminally punished for folks like us. A tremendous amount of damage has happened to our career. For others, that's not the case. Uh, so hopefully they will have some decision space with with wanting to continue to serve. We fought this entire time to give people the opportunity to continue to serve. And uh, to some degree, I think we've we finally got there. So it's uh, to be continued. Yeah, I think so, because we don't know what it's going to look like yet. 
Well, man, I think that's a good, uh, at that point, I think it's a good time to kind of, we'll finish it up. So for me, man, I, I just want to honestly, dude, this has been badass. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Susan. Uh, it's been a pleasure to the hospitality, the bourbon, the charcuterie board that had a blueberry donut on it. That was awesome. <laughs> So tell, your, tell your daughter. I that. sure will. Well, that's you. all. Yeah, um, you betcha. That's my kind of charcuterie board <laughs> with, with a donut. Um, so I, I just want to, you know, debrief style. Oh, there's always a, yeah. some goods, bads, others. You know, the it's the 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 shit sandwich, the good shitty good sandwich, which yep. is I got a lot of those. Um, <laughs> but you know, takeaways. Yeah, a couple takeaways from the discussion we've had, you know, and just from the experience so far is that. I think it's there, there's a lot of value that goes into reading books. Yeah. And this, you know, just digging into this a little bit caused me to do a little bit of reading. Some historical stuff. You know, like this isn't the first time. I want to get the book that you had mentioned earlier about the anthrax. But yeah, when it comes to um, when a society or a culture goes into some type of movement phase, whether it be positive or negative, there are forces in play that trigger momentum and it's not it's not unique it's happened multiple times before so i'm going to offer just an unsanctioned book promotion here if anybody's interested in reading books about how uh once a crowd starts moving and develops momentum um if you read the gulag archipelago by alexander solzhenitsyn it's a book book is absolutely terrifying yes it is and it's about the soviet union 1918 to the 1950s and what went on there it's extremely eye-opening and scary at the same time that's one book also i'm only a little bit into it so i don't want to prone it too much but the madness of crowds and i believe it's douglas murray have you read that one i have not but again i'll look into it so just books that talk about what happens historically when momentum starts playing and nobody checks it yep and there's a lot of historical examples of that specifically uh, Germany in the forties. So, but dude, thank you. And oh, thank you, Susan. The I would say big takeaway from just you and I bullshitting. You know, we're we're gifted with the ability to think. You know, certain people react to different things. And you know, remember the that we talk about when you're in the jet and shit is on fire. What do you do? Nothing for like three seconds. Count to three or count yeah. to five. Whatever. Don't do anything. Yeah. Breathe. Your jet's on fire. You're not dead yet. Breathe. So you take that pause. And that that's the metaphor for when some type of information comes down the pipe that, I don't know, you don't know anything about. Take that three to five second break and maybe do a little bit of research yourself before you make a decision that involves you, your family, you know, your loved ones. And I think that just comes with being a, a thinking human. We're gifted with these brains for a reason. We're not lemmings. We're not sheep. You know, take that stimulus, breathe for three seconds, do five seconds of thinking and 10 seconds of research on your magic light box that we all carry in our pockets, and then maybe make a decision. So this, is, for me, has been a lesson in just taking a pause and thinking it over. And I'm, I'm glad that you guys are doing what you're doing and setting the example and kind of fighting the good fight and especially representing the, the junior enlisted guys that might not have the voice. Um, so, dude, those are, those are my takeaways, man. 
And for anyone interested in learning more about any of this stuff from people much smarter than me, and probably a little bit smarter than Sonny because he was a nuke, but that's, that's, that's pretty <laughs> legit. Um, again, unsanctioned podcast promotion. Uh, Brett Weinstein, the Dark, Dark Horse yep. Podcast. Yep. He's a biologist, evolutionary biologist, I believe. Has some great conversations about this stuff. I would also encourage anyone to listen to people who disagree with everything Sonny and I have talked about. Find people who are on the opposite side of it. Yep. Don't listen to, definitely don't listen to me. You know, if you're going to listen to anybody, listen to Sonny, but for sure don't listen to me. So don't take my word for it. Do your own research and, uh, and then make a remotely educated decision. But check out those podcasts. And then Sonny, is there any other stuff that I'm missing as far as unsanctioned places where people can do research things like that i think you know children's health defense has been a great place Um, and again i would ask anybody who does not agree with what they are seeing take place i mean our leaders are in place to advocate for you and so i would ask them to make their voice known and do that at the uh, federal federal level definitely yeah do some homework so again those are unsanctioned we're not getting paid here (laughs) but (laughs) Um, man, that, that is on my end. That's it. So at this point, you, Susan. no, I'm, I'm turning over to you, dude. So save rounds, closing thoughts, lessons learned, you know, hail Mary's downrange. I'm excited for where things are right now. I'm a, a optimist by choice and by trade. So I am, dude, I'm rooting for you guys. I really am. I think this is, it, it warms my heart to see you guys standing your ground like this and the crowd of people that I know that are on your side that are doing this. And I'm also optimistic that those in leadership positions who've experienced this, who maybe may not have carried themselves in the way that exemplifies what it means to be a leader, they've had the reasons to make those decisions, but there's also tomorrow and everyone screws up and you can always, you know, all right, man, take it on the chin, move forward. Everyone can get better. And I'm optimistic that, those individuals, when this whole process works itself out, I think those people will be better off from it. And I think there will be some growth within the DOD specifically that hopefully inspires those next generations to, you know, kind of, I don't care the torch once you and I are gone. Uh, I think uh, so, Susan. I, it has been my pleasure to have you here. It's great to get caught up with you, man. Uh, I love living my life vicariously through you and hearing of all the things that you do. But um, I think you're—I mean, I'm optimist like you to a, to a fault. It earned me a call sign. Um, so I would say, um, to your point, I do desire that we. So what is done is done. Let us learn the lesson, um, because I think we um, perhaps would be doomed to repeat it. And again, in the context of the ideology in question this evening and what society faces right now, if we do not learn that lesson and we do continue to repeat it, um, we're going to find ourselves in far more challenging environments and with things that really matter a lot. All right, last question. I'm glad I remembered this, man. Oh, no. I just finished this bourbon. Yeah. We're done. Nope, we're not. One more. We, a while ago, hour and a half, two hours ago, we talked about all the stuff you experienced as a junior captain, junior paddles, that yep. crawler dude had the night in the barrel, all the leadership lessons along the way. I mean, everything. You've got your bucket, your toolbox of experience with you now. 
And then something totally out of left field, this whole COVID, the most polite word I can think of is shit show in there as well. And all the leadership and challenges from that stuff, you never thought you'd ever have to study, go through, experience everything, you know, the family experience and all that. If this works out and I, I'm, I'm hoping that it does and you get the chance to be a skipper. How is this whole experience going to play a role in your leadership style? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I think for the, for the first time, I mean, I think anybody like you or I who've gone through any amount of time in the military have a pretty well-defined at, at the at the levels we were at, pretty well-defined leadership style. Um, I shared this with my wife the other day. Um, this process, in my opinion, actually took what I understood, I think, academically and exercised to some degree, but it brought it into the laboratory of life. And what I mean by that is to say that for the first time, what we te- what we taught, preached, or would consider the definition of our leadership style, I would say servant leadership was actually put to the test. And so this has given us the true foundation. It took it from the ethereal and the academic, and it put it right at front and center. And so I think no, no matter what we're involved in from now on, um, this experience has solidified in us, has put a charge in us from a servant leadership standpoint that will continue on for the rest of our life here on this earth. Dude, I dig it, man. Good way to finish it up. Oh, thank you for your time, Susan. What do you think, man? Anything else? No, man. This was good. No more save rounds? I got no save rounds, brother. All right. All right. We are from Yuma, Arizona. We're signing off. This is Sonny and Susan. Thanks for listening, folks. See ya.